The views expressed on this podcast may not represent those of March of Dimes or its staff. Information presented on this podcast is not medical advice and should not be construed as such. When in doubt, seek competent medical advice. Hey, Alessia. Hi, John. Do you mind if I talk with the audience for just a sec? It's all yours. Cool. Hey, this is John Cherry. I work with Alessia, and I run the research portfolio at March of Dimes. As some of our listeners may know that I have a background in research. I started working in labs way back when. As I like to say, I've been around the bench a few times. Um, actually, now that I think about it, I've actually spent my entire working career as a scientist or around scientists, except for that I had that short stint as a bartender. But actually, most of my customers were from the lab across the drawbridge, so it doesn't really count. So anyways, so look, at my role at March of Dimes, I get a front seat to all the ridiculously cool stuff going on in research. And at March of Dimes, we're focused on finding ways to better understand how and why preterm birth happens, what we can do to help and support folks through it, and ideally what we can do to predict and hopefully prevent it. Now, this is the hard part. So I'm not a fundraiser. I don't claim to be one, but I'm actually asking you, our audience, to help. Now, research is one part of the work that we do, and it's what I'm hoping that you're also interested in. Now, I have a very, very big goal, and (laughs) I don't know if it's because I've never done fundraising before or because I think it's entirely possible that folks like you and me who are interested in research can get excited and involved at this level. But here's the thing. I'm working to raise 100 k in 100 days for research at March of Dimes, $100,000 in 100 days. Now, when we're recording this, there's about 100 days left in the calendar year. There's a little bit less, but I mean, who's count? Well, actually, I'm counting, but who's counting? Um, now, Alessia, these funds, and you know this, but I'm going to share with the audience, these funds help us support scientists who are working in the field and in the bench. They're all focused on the same vision of the future where Everyone gets a healthy start and a solid chance at a most excellent life. So we're looking for any size contribution, but honestly, the more you can give, the more we can do. Now, as an aside, when I mentioned this big hairy goal to my family, <laughs> my son, my 15-year-old raises his hand, ooh, 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 and he's like, dad, I want to make the first donation. Can I make the first donation? I want to be the first one. I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's fine. He's like, look, man, I've been mowing lawns all summer. I think what you're doing is really, I cannot make this up, Alessi. He's like, what you're doing is really important. I've been mowing lawns all summer and I want to donate a hundred bucks. Now, I I was honestly thinking like 10 bucks, 20 bucks. No, he throws in a hundred dollar bill to the fundraiser. So for me and my family, we are all in. Now, um, because this is audio, I've done a tiny URL, but I'm pretty sure Alessi is going to go ahead and link to the fundraising page in the show notes. So... I'm going to say it a couple of times, but head on over to tinyurl.com slash M-O-D-J-C. And that's all lowercase letters. I'll say it again, tinyurl.com slash M-O-D-J-C. You can make a donation there. It'll automatically link out. If you don't want to go through a tiny URL and you'd rather like stalk me on LinkedIn, don't stalk me. Just follow me or find me. I'm under JP Cherry, Jonathan Cherry, and... On my LinkedIn profile, directly under my photo, is a link that says 100K in 100 days because I got to be reminded of this thing. I suspect some of our listeners, Alessia, are probably either former, current awardees of March of Dimes or maybe folks who are looking to get involved in research at March of Dimes. For those of you who are 
past or current awardees, I'll be reaching out to you directly in the next few weeks to make a personal request. And I'm going to be honest, my, I'm not sure if my fingers are ready for for all this typing, but they're they're going to be sore. And finally, if y'all would like to learn more or, I don't know, you want me to come on the podcast and share what we're seeing and learning as we go through research, leave a comment, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, maybe we get a chance to meet up at the next March for Babies event in your town. So thanks for your attention. Thanks for the time, Alessia. I appreciate it. And I get to say it now on with the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Modcast, a new research podcast from the March of Dimes. Modcast is a podcast on the most impactful maternal and neonatal health research conducted today. I'm your host, Alessia Plohi. It's starting to feel like everywhere you look these days, what was once only science fiction seems more and more like reality. That is certainly the case in healthcare, where artificial intelligence is opening up a world of possibilities. And when it comes to the health of mothers and babies, AI is hard at work making big predictions, quite literally. I'm talking about a new machine learning artificial intelligence algorithm that can see into the future, so to speak, and predict diseases that babies born prematurely will get weeks before they get them and sometimes even before that baby is born. Yes, really, it's like a scientific crystal ball from premature babies, and the scientist behind the ball is here to tell us more. Dr. Nima Aigaipur, an associate professor of anesthesiology perioperative and pain medicine, and pediatrics at Stanford Medicine, and a key player at the March of Dimes Prematurity Research Center at Stanford University, has spent a considerable amount of time perfecting this little algorithm that could. He and a team of other researchers, including Dr. David Stevenson, who leads the March of Dimes Prematurity Research Center and oversees the group's translational research into preterm birth, started by asking a simple question. What can we do with existing data? And that question led to some very interesting answers. Dr. Agaipur, thank you for joining us today to talk about your research and this exciting discovery. Hey, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. First of all, can you tell us what you do exactly? Are you a doctor, a scientist, a professor, an anesthesiologist, a futurist, all of the above? I'm a machine learning scientist and an associate professor in, in the School of Medicine. When I'm not working, I'm also a pilot, skydiver, wingsuiter. I am not a medical doctor, so don't take anything that I say as medical advice. You are one more thing. You are a new father. Yes, we have a one-month-old at home now. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. So let's start at the beginning. This research that we're talking about today on this episode was published in February 2023 in Science Translational Medicine. What exactly did this research find? When, you know, if you were to talk to someone in an elevator and you said, hey, I'm 
an AI professor and um, I recently published a study and they would say, oh, about what? What would you say? Yeah, in this study, we built a connection between Stanford's adult hospital and the children's hospital using artificial intelligence. We showed that we can leverage all the information that we have on the mother during pregnancy, but also long before they were pregnant, and uh, put all of that information together to better understand the health of the baby. We showed that we can predict several very serious diseases in these newborns long before they are traditionally diagnosed. This is important because it gives the healthcare system much needed time to prevent these diseases rather than to react to them once, um, once it's already too late. Was this type of work happening before you guys undertook this work? Not to this extent. We were aware of various risk calculators that can either estimate the general health of a baby or can predict very specific diseases, but nothing that uses this level of sophistication to look at all aspects of health in premature babies. Yeah. And you said so the model was able to predict certain diseases uh, that these these babies born prematurely would get later um, and in some cases before they were born. What conditions or diseases are we talking about? In this article, we're tracking 20, 27 different conditions. Some of them are related to gastrointestinal health. Some are related to lung health, cardiovascular health. And, and neurocognitive development. So we are broadly looking um, across the board at all the major diseases that premature babies are, are facing. And we should say now that this model is not yet being used in the hospital or available to health professionals. It still needs to be validated in a larger trial with a more diverse population, is that right? Absolutely. In this first article, we validated the model separately in UCSF. However, both Stanford and UCSF are geographically very close to each other, and there are major similarities in our patient populations. But it's very important to take this not only across the country, but also to other parts of the world to better understand in which settings it works best and in which settings it needs improvements. Mm-hmm. And, and, and how long of a process is that? In, in other words, when could this maybe become reality? When could a tool like this be available for um, mothers who are pregnant and maybe are at risk of preterm birth and want to make sure that um, some preventative care, that, that they get preventative care? It's going to happen one step at a time. We are not going to make the entire model available to healthcare systems simultaneously. We are going to take this one disease at a time and carefully validate the predictions of the model. But more importantly, predictions that are not actionable are not very valuable. It's not enough just to say that this particular baby is at risk of this particular disease. We also have to help the healthcare system understand what to do about it. So we are going to take these diseases one at a time, carefully validate them, figure out what kind of actions can be recommended by the machine learning algorithm and make them available to the healthcare system one step at a time. 
in the paper, you do talk about kind of varying degrees of accuracy for different conditions. And to the naked eye, this may not sound like a good thing. Um, to the non-scientific eye, this may sound like, oh, they weren't able to predict all of the conditions with the same degree of confidence. But actually, this is a good thing, right? When we talk about the validation of the model, can you explain why? Yes, that that is, of course, it would have been better if we could predict absolutely everything with perfect accuracy, but that is not how science works. Progress has to be made gradually. Now that we know in which settings we can make good predictions and in which settings we, we are not doing as well, we can direct our resources using biological techniques, for example, using genomics, proteomics, and metabolomics, other, uh, other biological assays, using wearable devices to go after those diseases where using routinely collected information, we cannot make good enough predictions. Traditionally, we have been thinking about prematurity as just one disease, and we have been trying to study all premature patients as part of one cohort, one phenotype. But after this study, we understand that prematurity is a collection of various diseases for the baby. And um, we have this, uh, this will allow us to use a smarter approach at directing our resources to where they are most needed in order to make accurate predictions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned earlier, you said that this is important because um, it will allow these babies to get preventative care, better care. Why is that important? Why, um, how will this alter outcomes for babies and, and, for, and for mothers? Yeah, that generally the earlier you can intervene, the high, higher your chances of um, impact are going to be. We all now understand that end of life care is, um, is not the best investment of our limited healthcare um, resources. By the time that somebody has major comorbidities, it's, it's, we can help them a little bit, but not a lot. In contrast, if you help somebody at the very beginning of life, you can create 80, 90 years of quality life there at, at a relatively small cost to the healthcare system. There has now been plenty of research, some by us, some by other groups, showing that what happens during pregnancy and in the first few weeks of life is critical for the health of that person well into adulthood. People have linked prematurity to all kinds of diseases and even taking fewer steps on a smartwatch when, when you are into your adulthood. Similarly, preeclampsia has been linked to cardiovascular health of the baby several decades later. It's absolutely critical to intervene as soon as possible while the biology of, um, of these patients is still forming. Because if we wait until the disease has fully manifested, in many cases, it's either too late to do anything about it or it's going to be significantly harder. Yeah, that's super interesting. And in terms of the conditions that that the model looked at, the 26 conditions, um, you said earlier that it's 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 not it's not valuable to identify the conditions unless we can do something about those conditions. So, um, is are those conditions? Uh, can we intervene earlier in those condition, conditions, or are some of them kind of um, still mysteries? And even if we knew that this baby. 
um, were, was going to get this condition, let's say condition X, there's still nothing we could do. Or are most of these conditions actually we can intervene early with, with, with these babies? It's a little bit of both. One of the reasons that I love neonatology is that a wide range of interventions are already available, but we don't always know which interventions are a good idea for a particular baby. Mm. That is where I think machine learning can really help. For example, necrotizing enterocolitis is a gastrointestinal complication. By the time that it's diagnosed, several weeks after birth, it's um, it's difficult to correct the course. At that point, you have to go in with a pretty aggressive surgery with usually poor outcomes. But if we can diagnose it earlier, and our model certainly suggests that we can, there are strategies like delayed feeding, using antibiotics, and so on, that can prevent the disease altogether, at least in some patients. There are, however, other conditions that are still a mystery, and we don't exactly know what to do about them. Having these types of data-driven um, risk prediction approaches in place will help us better study these patients, because we can, in advance, tell who is likely to suffer from these particular mystery conditions. That way, we can direct our resources at researching them in more details, to uncover mechanisms that can help us design new interventions for them. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I found very interesting um, in, in the study was that um, this research really highlighted the role of the mother in the conditions of the baby. Um, for example, you saw, you saw a link between various social determinants of health and specific conditions in the baby. Is that something that... Um, you can elaborate on. Yes, absolutely. People have theoretically been talking about how the connection between the mother and the baby are very important and they should be studied as a unit. Here we use machine learning to do exactly that. And we have now shown that the connections are quite strong. For example, um, um, social determinants of health is one category that you mentioned. Generally, we have been thinking about social determinants of health in prematurity as just one unit. However, our research is showing that what type of social determinants of health we are talking about has direct impacts for the health of the baby. We are seeing that both incarceration and homelessness, for example, influence the health of the baby but it turns out that their influence is, uh, is not similar. They, they, they potentially could affect different aspects of the health of the baby. So it's really important to have that level of resolution to, um, to know exactly what is going on with the mother and what are the implications of that for the baby. Similarly, we, learn, uh, we uh, identified a connection between history of chemotherapy in the mother and the health of the baby. Generally, this is not something that's studied very often because not many women are undergoing chemotherapy during pregnancy, but our model identified a connection between even history of um, chemotherapy from, from a long time ago and the health of the baby. This is not to say that uh, people who have received chemotherapy in the past shouldn't get pregnant. This is just saying that this is an area that is not well understood yet, and we need to we need to carefully look at look at those connections. Yeah. Do you think that that 
it would be possible to intervene so early with this crystal ball with with the knowledge of of, of these conditions right so you see that this baby is not yet born or, or the baby was just born and you see through the model that it will get um a specific condition do you think it's possible to intervene so early that you prevent the disease from happening in the first place absolutely medicine is full of examples of uh, of early interventions that can uh, can prevent diseases in this case there are numerous opportunities many that have already been implemented there are fetal surgery um, interventions that are broadly used for for babies that are that are in need of them with these types of predictive modeling we can better identify who would benefit from these early interventions and we can also understand in what areas there is a need for development of new early interventions. Let's talk about the nitty gritty of the study. How many women and babies were part of the research and what medical data did the model take into account in its predictions? Because there was data from the mother and there was also data from the baby, right? Yes, the data set included initially 22,000 a little bit more than that, mother and newborn pairs. And then we had an extra 10,000 mother and newborn pairs later on for validation of the model. The data set included a wide range of information that we collected from these women's electronic health records, including all of their lab tests, all of their diagnosis codes, procedures, and demographic information. As you talked a little bit about this earlier, but what, you know, here we are in April 2023 talking about this, this, this thing that, like I said in the beginning of the podcast, was kind of a science fiction idea maybe 15 years ago. Now we're here. It's real. I mean, we're, you know, you're still validating it and et cetera, but, but the work is ongoing. Where will this little algorithm be in 10 years? What, what is your hope, your dream, your you know, your, your hypothesis of, of what this thing can do ultimately. I hope in 10 to 15 years, we get to a place where a neonatologist would look at this algorithm when they're doing rounds to not only identify various risk areas to understand what the baby is likely to suffer from in the next few weeks, but also to get key ideas about what actions to take, what type of interventions are needed. I don't think we are, we are at any point going to replace the neonatologists, but I certainly hope that this can become a powerful tool that, um, that works together with the neonatologists to figure out what uh, steps need to be taken for every single premature baby. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that, that you don't think we're going to replace the neonatologist, you know, and uh, because what a relevant, um, what a relevant topic with chat GPT and, uh, you know, the, the end of humans um, through AI and all these kind of fearful things that people are talking about in the media. Um, I'm sure that some people are thinking, oh, well, is, is, is the machine just going to take over in the hospital too? But so I, my question is, what... How, how is the NATO, neonatologist, ultim, how, how will the model never be as good as the human? Or maybe not as good, but um, how will the two work together? Or what, what type of replacing can never be, be done of, of, of the doctor? What does the doctor bring to the equation that 
the model could never and vice versa. I think this all falls on a spectrum. In some fields, in radiology and pathology and so on, we are certainly closer um, to AI, quote-unquote, replacing the doctors. Neonatology is, is one of those more sophisticated fields that I think are far from that. Generally, whenever you think about operating rooms and intensive care units, the stakes are very high, the patients are very sick, and um, the expectations are high. The parents want the absolute best for, for their newborn. So you need to rely not just on data, but on a good amount of intuition to, um, to get the patients to where they need to get to. And I think it's those cases where it's going to take decades before we possibly feel comfortable with letting AI algorithms take the lead, not necessarily to even replace humans. Yeah, intuition, that's the word. Can you tell us about how the model works? I know it's very complicated, but um, in previous interviews you've given and when you and I have spoken in the past, uh, you have said the model is, works a little bit like, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of like a bookworm. It's kind of like, it, it, it reads a massive amount of data and it remembers the important points. Is that right? Exactly. The entire electronic health record of a person is too big for a model like this to memorize. When you take it across tens of thousands of patients, we can't look at every single variable every time. However, the model is able to read these electronic health records in the same way that your brain can, can read a book. You don't remember every single word that you read. You remember general concepts and you bring them forward with you to the next chapter. Here we're using an algorithm called a long short-term memory neural network that can um, do the same thing with, with the longitudinal data that's available in the health record. Up until this point, we've been talking about babies who were born premature, but the data set included babies that were born to term. Did the model come up with any interesting findings with that cohort? The most interesting part of this analysis for me was that we did not identify a breakpoint where we would call some babies premature and others mature. Traditionally, we have been considering babies that are born before 37 weeks of gestation as premature, but as far as we can see there is nothing special that happens at 37 weeks. It's just a number that originated from historic studies several decades ago. But today there are plenty of babies who are born before 37 weeks of gestation and they're just fine. Similarly, there are babies who are born a little bit after that term, but they still get various uh, morbidities. So. And and looks like that is what we are getting out of the machine learning algorithm as well. That we need to move beyond this simplified threshold type of decision making processes that we have, and um, look at every single newborn as as an individual rather than as a number. I love that. That was my favorite part of our discussion, and that's not something that I've heard you say before. I'm sure you've said it, but not to me. 
So, well, then that begs the question, at what point is the baby done developing, right? There's got to be some time. I mean, you're not going to say a 28-year-week-old baby is ready to be born. So, you know, you see it, you see all these like week-by-week updates or developmental milestones in what to expect when you're expecting and all over the internet. When is a baby technically ready? Like, when are the lungs ready? When is the brain done? What percentage of body fat is ideal to be born with? You know, are we talking 36 weeks? Could it go even further back? I don't think that's an answerable question. This is a question that goes back to the very meaning of life. What does it mean to be human? We have now shown that prematurity happens in various dimensions. Uh, 36 weeks old may be perfectly ready to come out or they may have um, some aspect of their lung or their brain or their gastrointestinal system be premature. We cannot treat all of these equally. And like I said, when is somebody done developing is not, um, in my view, a scientific question to be answered, especially in the context of what is happening um, in what is happening politically around this, more than that, artificial intelligence in general has the potential to echo the biases that our society already has. Studying the ethics and equity of artificial intelligence by itself is a really big topic. When we bring artificial intelligence to to pregnancy and to neonatology, where we are dealing with the very beginning of life, which itself is is a complex ethical question, we have to be extra careful. We have to be very careful with answering questions like, where is the threshold of viability? Or when is somebody done developing? Or who even gets to see the predictions of these artificial intelligence algorithms? And who takes responsibility for the actions that are taken because of the predictions of these algorithms? I think these are all very important questions that science cannot necessarily answer. They're they are questions that um, need to be answered by humanities instead. They're questions that need to be answered by people, not machines. Exactly. Could we use this model to predict which women may go into labor prematurely? Because so far we've been talking about babies that have been born already and predicting the diseases that they will get. Can this be used to predict pregnant women that may go into labor early, that may deliver early? And I know that, you know, we just talked about how early is subjective, but based on today's understanding of 37 weeks, can... Can we use the model to predict prematurity? Because as you know, at March of Dimes, we're working very hard and you're working very hard to um, to end this prematurity crisis and the maternal mortality crisis. And so could could we use the model for early uh, prematurity prevention predictions? Absolutely. Both us and other March of Dimes prematurity research centers are working on this. None of the models are yet accurate enough to be used in the real world, but there definitely um, is promising early results from from the March of Times network that um, looks pretty good so far. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I just mentioned prematurity, but there's also preeclampsia, cardiovascular disease, infertility. Um, essentially, can we use this model to predict all sorts of problems before they arise? Absolutely. Generally, looking at maternal morbidities, 
using this type of approaches is something that is very high on our priority list. Okay, and in terms of how fast this model would work in a clinical setting in 10 to 15 years, the example that you walked me through earlier with the neonatologist, how fast could this happen? So for example, let's say um, I'm the neonatologist. I've got all the maternal data in my computer. Uh, the mother has just given birth. I've got all the baby's data, the APGAR score, weight, gestational age, uh, blood work, all that. Is it just a matter of pressing enter on my computer and immediately seeing this baby's future risk profile? Yes, the computations are, um, are fairly fast these days, so you will not need to wait for a long time to get that. We are thinking about deploying this throughout the healthcare system, not just when a baby gets admitted to the NICU. When we traditionally think about healthcare, it happens in independent buckets. You have your um, obstetrician and gynecologist, at some point the baby is born and responsibility shifts to neonatology. That is not how these machine learning algorithms work. They are always in the background, always watching the patient, regardless of whether it's before birth, after birth, who is the primary physician, none of that matters. They are constantly updating themselves and making new predictions. You can always go in and ask your questions. And every time that you have new information, you have the results of a new lab test or a diagnosis that you have made, you would put that in and everything gets immediately updated. That's incredible. That's what tomorrow looks like. Well, you heard it here, folks. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Aigaipur. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for all the work you do for mothers and babies. And I'm sure we'll have you on again soon to talk about more of your work. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today on ModCast. We want to thank you for your support, attention, and interest in learning more about research at March of Dimes. March of Dimes is a 501c3 charitable organization founded in 1938. Its mission is to end preventable preterm birth and improve the lives of all moms and babies so that everyone has a strong and healthy start. Research is one component of our work and the focus of ModCast. If you'd like to learn more about the other areas we work in and take the next step and get involved, find us at marchofdimes.org, on your social media venue of choice, or like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast. We can't do this without your support. Consider getting involved with your local March of Dimes group, joining us at a March for Babies event, or donating to the cause. I'm Alessia Plahi. See you next time.